Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. PTSD sure sucks, unless you like feeling like Hieronymus Bosch illegally sublet your brain. Depression sucks too. So what's with the upbeat music? Because some researchers are getting brilliant results healing PTSD and depression quickly using psychedelics in therapeutic settings. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved advanced clinical trials for MDMA or ecstasy as a medical treatment for PTSD. Ayahuasca, psilocybin, cannabis, LSD, and specialized forms of breathwork are also being studied. My guests, Kyle Buller and Joe Moore, produce the podcast Psychedelics Today, where they connect with people professionally engaged in this exciting research. Kyle and Joe are also facilitators in holotropic breathwork, which produces similar non-ordinary states. The potential of using psychedelics to heal PTSD is attracting widespread media attention. But Kyle and Joe and I also ask, could non-ordinary states transform our society? Could supported psychedelic experiences provide rites of passage that would help this self-centered, crazy-ass adolescent society grow up? Just a note, none of this is medical advice, and kids, don't try this at home. So welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. First of all, let's talk about what's going on with MAPS, what MAPS is and, and what it's doing. And it seems like this is kind of a real threshold for progress. You want to you wanna fill people in on what's happening? I'll let you grab that, Kyle. Sure. Yeah. So MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they're a nonprofit based out of California. And uh, they're privately raising money to uh, get MDMA, also known as ecstasy, uh, approved for psychotherapy. So the big news that was just released around December 1st was that the FDA approved their phase three clinical trials to uh, move forward with their research with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, that's their main focus right now is trying to get MDMA legalized for psychotherapy for people with post-traumatic stress, which is really exciting because it has um, some pretty good uh, study outcomes. And so since they're still in research phase, you know, nothing's really set in stone. But as of right now, it's looking pretty promising for um, as a treatment for people that are suffering. And so I think they're mostly uh working with veterans on that aren't they or veterans or and their partners or they're they are treating vets but it is also open to other people so they had some uh first responders uh part part of their trial so they had i don't know how many uh but I just did a, um, a training with them um, with MDMA therapy and we were watching some videos, but 
One was a first responder at the World Trade Center during 9-11. Mm. There's, there's been some people with sexual abuse trauma. And yeah, some veterans too. Yeah. And in addition to the MDMA uh, research, there's also research going on with psilocybin and people who have end-of-life depression issues and this is at NYU, Johns Hopkins, Michael Mithofer, the guy who, who with his wife, Anne, who's a, he's a psychiatrist, she's a psychiatric nurse. These are all kind of, these are all peer-reviewed studies, right? Yeah, peer-reviewed and very um, strict research, you know, like the admission criteria for some of these, uh, these clinical research phases are, they're pretty strict. So um, I remember, I think during their first initial MDMA for phase one, you know, um, they had to meet uh, a criteria of least an average of like 19 to 20 years of being diagnosed, been through uh, conventional medicines, all that stuff. So, you know, they, they are being strict about who they admit. It's not, and you know, it's in, it's in a clinical setting. So yeah, it's not having people over and doing it for fun and doing research. It's very right. scientific. Right. And this is kind of a, uh, not a throwback, but it's a progression from research that was being done in the sixties and then got demonized. Is that correct? It got um, politicized and tied up with the anti-war movement. And um, I think Nixon found a way to suppress highly political people mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, take attention away from the war a little bit by doing this whole drug war thing and yeah. just kind of shutting down uh, research and you know, recreational use. And of, um, and of course, the drug war, let's just say, has been so successful. That is the, it is, <laughs> it is the model for how to solve problems anywhere. It depends uh, on what kind of problem you're trying to solve, right? <laughs> Bat in the pockets or, or what? If you're trying to lock up as many people as possible, it's your go-to. <laughs> yeah. Have a war on something. Joe, I think it was a book, wasn't it, that first kind of sent you in this direction? Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot had a reference to Stan Groff and breathwork and LSD psychotherapy. It was only three paragraphs, but it sent me off in this direction. Wow, three paragraphs in a book, and you were, you were on your way. Off to the races. <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to say who Stan Groff is. He's a Czech psychiatrist, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. And uh, this is a quote from Stanislav Grof. He says, uh, he's in his 80s now, I think, mid to late 80s. I feel deep inner transformation of humanity on a large scale might be necessary for the survival of our species and feel deep respect for those individuals who have recognized that the first step in saving the planet has to be changing ourselves. Mm. That's Which, beautiful. yeah, it makes such sense. You know, you, uh, politics can only go so far. Why, Kyle and Joe, are you particularly interested in this? Mm. Go, Joe. <laughs> I kind of ran into it sideways doing my philosophy degree and saw these unbelievable stories that just sounded very sci-fi or like... Um, started to give some validity to things that sounded religious. So I, you know, I was fascinated that I wasn't really a very religious person, um, you know, in terms of going to a church. Um, but 
I said, oh, look, there's these things that look to be scientific evidence for these wild experiences and uh, really impressive healing results. You know, the early data treating um, depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. PTSD uh, in, in the 60s and 70s, very impressive. So I, that's what really got me into it, the full gamut of the psychedelic you know, from the healing to the exploratory um, really got me fascinated. And then mm -hmm. I just got steeped in the work through doing a lot of polytropic breath work and mm -hmm. becoming a facilitator with the people at Dream Shadow. And before we go on, let's talk about what holotropic breath work is. So it is a technique uh, using breath, music, group process, artistic expression, focus safety, body work. and focus body work. Yeah, in, in a safe environment combined to make this really great whole that uh, appears to do almost exactly what psychedelic uh, psychotherapy does. You know, there's definitely differences. You're not eating something. You're just breathing in a, in a very custom environment, special environment, and uh, stuff happens. Uh, extraordinary experiences come up uh, internally, and, and um, it's just a nice way to work on. It's a really unique opportunity to work on yourself in a, kind of a healing context, you know, without an expert therapist telling you about yourself. It's yeah. you kind of digging in with a whole group. Right yourself and each other and that's right. how I met you guys is that I went to a holotropic uh, breathwork workshop and you guys were facilitating that for what there were about 20 of us or so who were that sounds right who were mm -hmm. uh, doing this over the summer and it, it was a course of several days although I vomited so much the night after <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't, yeah, not not normal, but maybe, yeah, you had a, yeah. some sort of psychosomatic response. But, it, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, people have profound experiences, and before you do it, you know, with, in talking with the people who are participating with you, you realize how much pain people are walking around with. Yeah. You know, there might be someone, like there were quite a few nurses there, obviously functional, but so many of us are carrying around crap that um, it certainly affects our lives and affects how we how we act with other people. Kyle, do you want to talk about how you got into holotropic breathwork and this sure. general interest? Yeah. Um, so when I was 16, it really kind of started around there. I had a snowboarding accident and had a near-death experience which kind of shifted my life a whole lot. So coming back, um, I always say f kind of from the other side, um, trying to navigate reality afterwards was really difficult. And I didn't really have any teachers or mentors, so I just hit the books and started reading a lot about um, you know Eastern philosophy, meditation, Buddhism, and uh, you know it was getting me places, but it wasn't helping resolve some of this curiosity and also this overshadowing depression that I was going through because you know, when I almost died there was a sense of like I was going home and then coming back to real life was I don't know kind of um it was heavy and I was 16 so going back to high school was really difficult and I kind of had this existential crisis and mm -hmm. it was just really intense so 
um, you know, during kind of like an experiential phase of my life, I had a, um, an experience with psilocybin and, you know, it was just some random thing. I wasn't really set off to do it, but it just kind of happened. And mm-hmm. it really helped me resolve some of this trauma that I was holding on to with my near-death experience. It helped me resolve a lot of things I was holding on to and really just like cleared me of this like suicidal depression that I was experiencing. And it also had this um, this similarity between death and dying. And that The psilocybin experienced it? Yeah, so mm-hmm. that experience really got me. That that was the thing that got me most interested was uh, taking a substance like that and then having it so similar to death of my near death experience and kind of reliving it. It just made me think a lot about consciousness and what is reality. And so I started doing a lot more research and I stumbled across this guy uh, Rick Strassman's book DMT: The Spirit Molecule, and. You know, the, the headline that caught my attention was near-death experiences and other mystical experiences, like research in it. So I started researching it, and then um, I got into Stan Groff's work, and, um, you know, DMT, the spirit molecule, was talking about uh, psychedelic therapy and how um, some of these experiences can be beneficial. So it was just really resonating with my experience of kind of coming over this depression and you know, resolving some of this uh, trauma from my near-death experience. And so then I ended up going to a school studying transpersonal psychology as an undergraduate, and I stumbled across holotropic breathwork. And uh, then, yeah, that's really where it started really taking off, was doing breathwork and then doing a lot more research in the therapeutic uses of non-ordinary states, um, got really into like shamanistic cultures and uh, their uses of plant medicines and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So um, it really it really started with my near-death experience and my um, curiosity of consciousness and reality. And during that near-death experience, you actually saw people working on you over above them in the, in the um, emergency room and all that kind of stuff, right? You had kind of a pretty classic experience. It was... It was classic. Not, I, it wasn't during surgery I saw. So by the time I got to the hospital, I lost about five and a half pints of blood internally and my veins, my body collapsed, were collapsing. And so I was leaving my body and I, I could feel the emotions of all the nurses and doctors and their worry, their anxiety. Um, and it, it's a really ineffable experience to try to explain. Yeah. So it was like I was in my body, I was out of my body. And then by the time they were doing the cat, the CAT scan to see what was wrong with me, um, they just kept telling me not to fall asleep. And then I just felt this like glowing sense of peace and something told me that I was going to go home and um, just to relax into it and that this physical life was going to cease to exist, but I was going to continue on. And so I kind of relaxed into it and then they brought me off to surgery. And so I was out of my body at that point. I remember being behind like the room where the doctors were actually doing the x-rays for the MRI or the CAT scan. And um, so it was like this dual experience in my body, out of my body, floating around, but also being really internalized. Mm -hmm. And then what really messed with me was having this experience of going somewhere and then not remembering it. So that was the really interesting thing about when I picked up Rick Strassman's book. 
he his hypothesis was that you know this molecule DMT might be released during a near death experience when the body is highly stressed and i i think i remember reading that some people that were having near death experiences and right before they would get anesthesia right before surgery and stuff it would suppress visual hallucinations mm. and so that's like what messed with me the most was having this like you know this experience but not remembering it and when i read that line in you know uh, the spirit molecule it just it resonated so much like that's what messed with me like i didn't have this like typical thing but i just had this feeling this knowing that my spirit went somewhere so and then when you came back was was I mean, besides the fact that you were 16 years old and in high school, which usually sucks, and <laughs> and plus you were injured. Yeah. But once you realized what had happened, did you see life differently? Yeah, I always kind of describe it as like I woke up in the hospital and it's like I had a map laying on my chest, like a metaphorical map. And and it was like whatever that experience was gave me kind of like these instructions to the world. And so that's what was the most difficult thing that threw me into the depression of like just seeing reality through a totally new lens and mm -hmm. just utterly confused about humanity and some of the things that we do and some of the social constructs that we create and trap ourselves into. Um, mm -hmm. So that was like a really heavy thing to hold on to. So yeah, it, it changed my life, changed my perspective. And then yeah, being 16, trying to navigate the world with this existential belief and being like, I don't understand any of this stuff. I don't know why I'm going to school right now. I could be doing a million different things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is just some crazy system that they, they factory produce kids, you know? Um, well, that's true. Yeah. And, yeah, and, the public schools. I, I, I wanted to go do my own thing. And I met a teacher later on and he was like, yeah, you know, it, re it really sucks because if you were in a uh, traditional culture, the elders would have stepped in, took you out of school and taught you the things that you needed to learn, you know, kind of like an apprenticeship to do some sort of work because I've gone back and forth a lot but since you brought up Stan Groff's a quote popped in my head when he was talking about trying to explain these these experiences to people I believe he said it's like explaining to an adolescent what an orgasm is like they're never going to understand it mm -hmm. until they have an experience and so after my near-death experience I was really frustrated like um and, you know, I think that kind of gets you tunnel vision. Like, I've seen this thing, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes when I was younger, it was like, oh, I know how this works. And in reality, I, I don't know anything. And I think that's the greatest teacher that once you think you have it figured out, life will throw you some sort of curveball and you realize you have nothing figured out. Um, but my, I guess my analogy about experiences is that, you know, we're going back to this topic of initiation, say in some um, traditional cultures, you know, they might prepare adolescents to go into the forest to defeat the, uh, the monster that lives in there. And so our culture says there's a monster in the forest, but we seen them and you cannot deal with them. And so our culture doesn't prepare us to do that. And so my like analogy is like, well, I think that's what we need to do. Like we need to go in there. Like our elders need to step up and give us the tools to go explore instead of saying, no, that's in there. I've seen it. I know what it's done. You cannot have any association with it 
versus giving us the tools, giving uh, the adolescents tools to step up into their power, go see what that is, and then come back and report. Because that's, I think that's what it comes down to. Everybody um, is just functioning outside of the forest. They've never explored in there. And so they don't have anything um, to bring back. And what they're bringing back is just what's getting fed to them by the, per the person that uh, you know protects the forest and won't let anybody in there. You say, nope, nope, this is what's in there. We've seen it. We, c we go in there and, and, and you know, make sure everything's safe. You don't need to go in there. And my thing over time is like, well, you know, I don't really hate people. I'm not, I, sometimes you know, I don't get frustrated with people that don't, don't understand this stuff. It's just, you know, you, you need to experience it yourself, you know, whether that is through breath work or whatever. You know, I don't encourage people to go off and do really intense things, but, um, you know, there's a lot more to life than, than some of the stuff that we know about. So what would you consider some of the things that are in the forest that people aren't supposed to see but are supposed to take somebody else's word for? Um, I guess like sometimes I think of that as just like a power analogy. Like they're like, I don't know. I made this analogy with like religion. Somebody was telling me like, you know, they just believe it. And I, and I just, I was like, well, how do you know? Like, how do you just believe mm -hmm. it? And they're like, well, I just, I just know, like they tell me and I'm just like, but you've never experienced it. So how can you just believe it? And so I don't know. I always kind of come back to that initiation thing of like, I think traditional cultures would prepare them to face those demons, like prepare them to go into the woods and experience that, um, whatever that is. And, you know, now I think it's based around like news, what's really going on in the world, um, you know, about ourselves, you know, I mean, think of a drug war, like we don't allow people to explore consciousness. Right. We allow them explore stupors, just get drunk and smoke cigarettes and whatnot. It's the, some of these consciousness expanding tools or these plant medicines, um, they're dangerous because it creates chaos. It makes you understand that you have no control over chaos, but in the chaos that there's order. Um, and, you know, you can't have a, a society that functions in that realm if you want to, like, do business with people. I have another quote here. I think this comes from the story that uh, Michael Pollan did in The New Yorker a while back called The Trip Treatment. Oh, no, Roland Griffiths said this. Uh, at, where's he, Johns Hopkins? He's one of the researchers doing mm -hmm. this, as you know. Uh, there is such a sense of authority that comes out of the primary mystical experience that it can be threatening to existing hierarchical structures. Mm. Then uh, Pollan says, toward the end, psychedelics may be too disruptive for our society and institutions ever to embrace them. And so what do you think of that? Like, once you know what you know on a deeper level, you're not going to fall under the spell as easily, right? Well, I think it can come back to, well, let's face it. Like, I had a near-death experience when I was 16. I didn't take a psychedelic, and that changed my worldview. People get into car accidents and live. You know, you could walk outside and get hit by a car, live, and then that's going to change your reality. Sometimes you get diagnosed with, like, cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to change your reality. And the, just life in general is going to change your reality if you engage with it. And to say that like a psychedelic is going to change your reality that much to break down, you know, rebel against authority. Yes and no. 
what's an appropriate way for culture to address how disruptive psychedelics yeah, are? Absolutely. I think yeah, is another so, way of looking at it. Yeah. It's a strong question. Yeah. Uh, we talked to Neil Goldsmith, who's a therapist in, in Manhattan, kind of uh, eminent on the psychedelic topic, um, author, all that. He proposed and actually took part in a uh, almost mm-hmm. think tank in the Hamptons. They got a bunch of thinkers together and, and kind of an audience and just kind of worked through it. I think there needs to be some sort of um, public-private partnership or, or look at this. I think experts in the field, I think people at the DEA and FDA and, and some culture people too. I, I don't exactly know who in culture but probably um, television or entertainment executives need to be in the room too to know this stuff is happening. We're not going to slow it down. What stuff you mean? Um, and, and what we need to do is get ready. The psychedelic okay. uh, revolution with the coming likely rescheduling of mm-hmm. MDMA and psilocybin um, will come a whole flood of... Um, well, when they reschedule, maybe we'll put that out. So right now, these drugs are, you know, on par with um, very serious, dangerous drugs in the FDA schedule. And <clears throat> as soon as they are prescription available, um, legally speaking, it should be put into a different legal category with much uh, less mm-hmm. harsh penalties for possession and selling. And as media picks up on how effective these treatments are and as it becomes less illegal, then I think it's an inevitable flood we're looking at of this stuff. Um, if you look at the youth music culture right now, the amount of psychedelic use um, is happening, it? is pretty extraordinary. And I think right now we're at, uh, yeah, for sure. Right now I think there's more people who have done psychedelics in America than, than people were doing really? psychedelics in the 60s, 70s. Yeah. So we have more psychedelic culture. And when you get out of northern Vermont, <laughs> or at least a little west, um, things, things change a bit. And it's uh, pretty fascinating. Living in Colorado, it's very interesting because there's so much music and so much culture and uh, kind of a core drug culture to that music scene well i, I uh, saw something you were interviewing someone on your podcast psychedelics today who now in colorado now that it's uh recreational use is legal he's working with people on using marijuana to enhance meditation to enhance emotional and mental states for healing and the the legalization of marijuana seems to be moving along at a, a similar clip to for example the way gay marriage did you know it's all of a sudden the dominoes fell are there stories coming out of that culture though there are as kind of uh, warning-based as back in the day when said, oh, you'll never come back from your trip. And... <laughs> we have science now, thank God. Well, we had science um, then, then, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, the safety date is different, and now we have elders, and we have a lot more books mm-hmm. that actually talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So in terms of warnings, yeah, there's definitely overuse and abuse, and you know, people... Um, you know, slipping into uh, 
an enhanced homelessness. I don't really know the enhanced best way to put it. Homelessness. That's a new one. They are homeless, going to concerts all the time, using drugs all the time. It's like somehow they're homeless with money. Uh, or just very poor, mm-hmm. like destitute. Trustafarians. Yeah, which is okay. I, I'm, a, I'm totally in support of trust funds. I wish <laughs> I had one. But I think um, there, there's a, a, both a dark and a light side to right. it. It's a, and I think conscious use, like that interview you were mentioning with Daniel McQueen in Boulder, the conscious use and deliberate use is really increasing in popularity to to a degree, I don't think it was happening in in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that was the point I was gonna get at. Um, going back to my rant was that um, okay, integrate <laughs> in- integration is what is um, missing, and I mean it's been coming. It's become a topic of interest now. But um, you know, if you have a really powerful experience, like you know, there aren't too many elders around to help you navigate that. Mm -hmm. And so why did I rebel when I was 16 against this stuff after having like a really powerful experience? Because I didn't have anybody to teach me that this is okay. This is normal. This is um, an experience that we can work through and we'll show you how to navigate reality. Now Mm -hmm. we don't have any of that. I mean, we do, you know, we have these psychedelic elders who've written books and have some sort of map. And, um, you know, I, I looked at shamanic cultures, um, for, for help, but, you know, I, I think if we put those structures in place to help people navigate that and stop, um, just saying that these things are terrible for you, that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to make people rebel even more because you've created a society that people don't know how to function Mm -hmm. in. You know, if you just create it, um, and create a safe space for people to explore in and um, have them, like help them come back, you know, I think people will integrate into society. Mm-hmm. It's not that you know, these things you want to be pushed away from society after having a powerful experience. It's, you know, the, in- the integration is not there. Right. And it seems like, you know, so many people are moving away from religion and yet we have these uh, spiritual tendencies, these spiritual drives that this culture doesn't really satisfy. And that's why whenever I hear about the opioid addiction uh, problem, which of course we do have uh, to a great degree here in Vermont and a lot of rural areas, you know, people are going to seek altered states. Uh, humans always have. And if, as you say, there isn't integration or there isn't guidance or you don't know how to go about it, but you're just craving that thing that you crave that you don't get from your culture, that's that's a real problem. And pretending that people are not going to do it, I think, is is crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's like what breathwork is and like these conscious cannabis circles on our last interview. It's creating a safe space for people to do that, but also creating guidelines and a structure for uh, a person to navigate Mm -hmm. and also help with the integration phase. Um, And yeah, I always come back to like this topic of rites of passage and um you know because that's what it is we're recreating these rights because we don't have them Mm -hmm. and so 
you know, for we never grow up. We're generations of just childish adults because we've never passed through that phase. There's just nothing in our culture that allows that. It's true. Um, you know, some of us do, but we just live in a, a culture where we don't have these initiations. So we're creating them. And, you know, they're going to continue to use drugs. You're going to continue to um, experiment. And, you know, and that's part of the phase. You, there's three phases. There's a separation and then you get the liminal state where you enter into a state and then the elders step back in and you have the integration phase, how to come back to your community, how to bring back that lesson that you, you learned, maybe meeting that monster in the forest. And then how do you bring it back into your community to serve the future generations? And, um, you know, I, I don't know if we really have that. What do, what do you get out of working with people who are going through this kind of work? Well, I guess um, for me, it is kind of like that to to do breath work, to initiate an experience for somebody to um, just have so then they can have a better understanding of their self and maybe their relationship to the world. Because I think that's like what it comes down to is facilitating an experience to foster your curiosity on how you have a relationship with the universe. Um and so I, I guess that's what I get out of it is, you know, because I've had really transformative experiences with breathwork and it's shifted my worldview on how I interact with the world. And um, it's also helped me just integrate some past traumas that I've experienced. It helped me just shed away some things that I've been holding on to that I didn't know I was holding on to. Um, so it's just kind of sharing that experience and just hopefully fostering some type of healing for people. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Joe? So I think over time I became, um, I, I think to start, I was looking for some sort of healing in myself, striving for something that what I didn't have. Um, I feel like I eventually broke through to, to get that, but it took a long time. And in, in that whole process, I saw how much people were suffering, mm -hmm. how much people wanted healing and wanted to be loved. Um, and this was one way to, to be able to really show and express a lot of compassion for people, make them feel, you know, for example, make them feel safe for the first time in their life. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, the first time I heard that kind of comment, I, it blew me away that I was able to play part in someone feeling that safe. Mm. Um, and I think that kind of comment or... or you know, and just people being thankful, you know, people know that it doesn't really pay well for us to do workshops. So you know, when, <laughs> when people show how thankful they are to yeah. us, um, that that's really it, you know, it, it, and it's this makeshift um, tribal community that comes up during a workshop. And um, it's just a really valuable uh social environment to be in i just mm -hmm. you know can't get enough of it and it's it's one of the cures to alienation is one of the ways i put it you know being involved in the workshop or being a participant you you no longer feel alienated after a bit i call it love i call it love i call it love i call it I call it love. I 
I have a quick question, and then I want to ask you where this is all going for each of you. But it seems that um, people use psychedelics more than the word hallucinogenics. Is there a reason for that? There's a movement right now to bring back the word psychedelic um, because we've been afraid to use it. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of misuse because hallucinogen is a really specific term. You're, you're seeing things in your visual field that aren't there. Okay. And you might be applying some sort of reality to those things you're seeing. Whereas visual distortion and like hyperlinking your neurons is different from a straight hallucination. There's very few like true hallucinogens, but psychedelic in particular means what soul manifesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mind yeah. manifesting. Manifesting the mind or manifesting the, the soul. Psyche. Yeah. Psy- like in, in Greek. Soul. soul, mind, all that. So you're manifesting all that. And I, I think that's a great term for me. The other one is entheogen that people are using. And that's like very similar. Manifesting the God within mm-hmm. is how they put thing. And that's, you know, hinting at Eastern Hindu ideas. Um, the general gist is that the, the name is important. It's similar to how the LGBTQ movement kind of took back gay mm-hmm. um, and are owning words as opposed to using euphemisms. We're taking some lessons from that. From, from your experience in seeing this over the length of time that you've been involved in it, is there, do you think there's an acceleration going on? Absolutely. Yeah. I think new media, social media, and... Um, a few other trends uh, have really helped stuff like ayahuasca gain enormous popularity. And I think there's something about that substance in particular that's um, really struck a chord with the mainstream. And people are very interested. Um, so I see an acceleration largely initiated by ayahuasca being very popular. Why do you think it's so popular? Uh, because it has a long history of use, it's mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, every, just about everybody says it works. I think there's probably like half a percent of people who don't have an effect the first time, mm-hmm. but you're, something's probably going to happen. And typically it has really, well, because it's DMT, it has really strong visual, um, presence, I guess. And sometimes spirits or th- things can present themselves like spirits to you mm-hmm. that really just knocks people's socks off. And they get messages from those things. Mm-hmm. Clean up your act. Get closer with your family. You should probably stop taking so much oxycodone. <laughs> Stuff like messages like that that they'll get from these spirits. And people's lives become better in general just because they're willing to be more present with their loved ones and, and screw up less. And that seems to be part of the healing for people who are doing psychedelics who have end-of-life issues that they realize oh wait a minute this is all just it's just a big big universe about love and I have nothing to worry about and Mm, it's it's, so it's the same kind of kind uniting people what do you think Joe yeah yeah I think a lot of people uh, you know are seeking some sort of healing Um, and yeah, I think it kind of comes back to that. Like we're, you know, we're not 
like my generation's not very religious where I think a lot of people would say we're spiritual. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, we're all seeking for something. There's been a lot of media headlines and documentaries made about ayahuasca, um, just showing the effects and people get really curious and us being humans, we seek novel experiences and it's something mysterious that we don't know about. Um, you know, it's like, why do people go hunting for ghosts? You know, cause they want to believe it in some sense, or they want to deny that that part of reality doesn't, it doesn't exist. Um, I've seen ghosts. Did I ever so... talk about the ghost I saw? <laughs> no, yeah, I, saw I don't think so. And in fact, he looked, when I described the ghost, another person I went to high school with who had seen the same guy um, driving around with a friend, so both of them saw him. He was a teacher in, a, in an old schoolhouse, and uh, he was, you know, transparent. Mm. I, I didn't want to look too closely. I was driving alone late at night and I wasn't stoned or anything. And, um, <laughs> so where for you two guys, is this something you think you'll be involved with for a long time? Are you, you're both studying ways to, uh, work with people? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll be involved for a long time. I can't imagine getting bored in this yeah. work. It's endlessly interesting. Yeah. Yeah, li likewise. And, you know, with our project, it's uh, a great little outlet to form a community mm -hmm. to talk about this stuff. And, you know, I see myself, you know, I'm in grad school right now. So um, hopefully to be a therapist eventually to be licensed. So, you know, just continue working with people. I just like to work with people. Um, and with breath work, you know, I think that's going to be just like a huge part mm -hmm. of my life. So it's been really transformative for me. So, you know, it's just giving back to other people and um, sharing the gifts. Uh, it seems, you know, according to Groff, and I think Kyle and I have similar inclinations, that this kind of work is one of the key transformations we need in order to survive the ecological mm. crisis and, you know, just global crises in general. Um, because there appears to be no clear-cut logical way to to do mm -hmm. this thing well but with huge amounts of transformation inner and outer starting with inner we we should probably be able to make it work mm -hmm. and this is one of the fastest ways to um, create lasting change in an individual one more thing how each of you is responding to the political stuff that's happening because I heard you interview this woman who's doing research and she thought it was highly ironic that on the front page of the New York Times on the <laughs> same day you had Trump and then you had uh, research being approved to uh, for phase three by the FDA. Yeah. You know, I don't know. There might be some sort of political stuff with... Um the MDMA, because, you know, if they do complete phase three, it means that, you know, it should be approved for, um, as a medicine for therapy. So I don't know, like I'm hopeful. I have my fingers crossed that, you know, science will start having more of a say in politics and I'm hoping that that is the case, but, um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, the, the world continues to surprise me. So <laughs> I try not to hold too much expectation now. <laughs> What about you, Joe? I I continue to be cautiously optimistic <laughs> about everything. I, uh -huh. I still think largely we are on the right track. I know it's kind of horrifying to have the new robber barons out there, you know, ganging up 
to take what's left. You know, that's how we think about it. But I, I feel like evolutions in this kind of medicine, these books being published, um, is all a great thing. And technology is just exponentially improving. Mm-hmm. Um, healthcare is exponentially improving. Hopefully it becomes more democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, t- politics are temporary. We're, we're in this as a human species all together. And I, I just think that uh, temporary shifts like this, as scary or as dangerous and horrifying as they are, they're things we're going to get through. So just don't lose yourself in the process. Thank you so much, guys. I, I really appreciate it. There's a lot going on, and it bodes really, really well for people who need to heal, need to get to know themselves better, and I think it's great, the work you're doing. And uh, we'll have a link to the podcast and the show notes so people can learn more about it. Well, thanks for having us on. I really appreciate it. It was really fun to connect yeah, it's again. Been, it's been fun to be on the other side. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Okay, bye. <laughs> All, right, All right, take right, care. Take care, Thanks to Joe and Kyle for joining me, and thank you for listening. You can find their podcast at www.psychedelicstoday.com. For more info on stuff we talk about, go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on the Big Chew Podcast. The Big Chew Podcast comes out every two weeks on the full moon and the new moon, so stay tuned. Bye for now.